let's pray together before we get started tonight. I mean, this morning. Uh, Father, you are faithful, wise, good, true. And we worship you today. And I pray now, Lord, that as we just look in your scriptures and think a little bit more about what for many of us is a familiar story, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to see with fresh eyes the God of Christmas, what we can learn, Lord, about you from the story of Jesus Christ, of what you have done for us, and I pray you would help us to see with eyes of faith and to be changed by what we see. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now, as we get started this morning, I just want you to think about something with me. And that is, uh, how is it that we come to know God? I mean, you know, if you think about it, God is invisible. (laughs) He's spiritual. He's a... uh, Jesus said that God is spirit. That means he's he's immaterial. He, He does not... He does not exist, as it were, in the, uh, by means of um, things that you can touch or see or feel or perceive by the bare senses, naked senses. So if God is like this, if you think about it then, and us being material beings, uh, created beings, physical beings, how is it then that we can come to actually know anything about God at all? If God cannot be perceived, as it were, by our senses, how can we know him? And the answer, of course, is rather simple. It's this, is that we can only know him if he reveals himself to us. That's the only way. And how has God chosen to reveal himself to us? He has revealed himself, in fact, in many ways. In the Old Testament, for example, through Angels, through speaking from fire and, and cloud and darkness and in many other ways, through prophets whom he implanted his word into, who spoke words from God. But all these were just glimpses, as it were, of God. God had a plan to reveal himself in the fullest way possible to his creatures. And this is how he did it. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hebrews 1.3 He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 2, 9, for in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God has showed himself 
in many ways, but God has fully and finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You want to know God, you have to come to Jesus. You have to come through Jesus. And if you come through Christ, if you know Christ, then you know the Father. So what what I want to do this morning is I want to look in this passage, this familiar Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And what I want to ask is this. What does the story of Jesus' birth reveal to us about God? Or in other words, who is the God of Christmas? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? As we read from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word of God. You may be seated. We're going to see three things this morning about the God of Christmas. Three things. Number one. We're going to see that he is a world-moving God. Number two, he is a self-impoverishing God. And number three, he is a promise-keeping God. The world-moving God, the self-impoverishing God, and the promise-keeping God. Number one, he is the world-moving God. You look here in the book of Luke, and you you see that Luke is... um, he, he, he's taking great pains to convey to his uh, reader and readers the historical details about what happened uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus. In fact, in the introduction to the book of Luke, he said this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So note here that Luke is not, he's clearly, he's not intending to to give some kind of mythological story. He is saying, I have researched, I have talked to eyewitnesses, and this is the account of what happened at Jesus' birth. And he cites a well-known historical figure, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. 
who was emperor of Rome, of the Roman Empire from 27 BC to AD 14. Not only does he cite Caesar Augustus, but he cites that during the time of the census that would be taking place for, um, for tax purposes, that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, the, the, the region in which Israel was in at that time. So it's clear then that Luke is trying to tell us what specifically, what happened historically surrounding the time of Jesus' birth. Caesar had decreed, uh, Caesar had decreed a census, and um, it would, they typically did this, I think it was every seven years, and, um, and it would take some time from the decree uh, in Rome to reach all the way out to Assyria and for them to actually enact the census. And apparently, uh, the way the Jews carried out uh, this command from uh, Rome was, uh, and maybe they were kind of taking records of their own as well as, as part of this. And so all the Jews were required to go to their ancestral homes as part of this census. And so what we see here is that Joseph, who was of the lineage of David, uh, was required to go back to his ancestral home, namely Bethlehem, in order to be registered for the census. Now, why is this important? Why is Bethlehem such a big deal? Well, we learn about it in Matthew chapter 2. In this event that happened a year or two later, actually, so the wise men weren't at the nativity. Y'all knew that, right? Okay, just making sure. All right, one or two years later, after the, after the birth of Jesus, the wise men show up and, and uh, say, where's the king? And Herod doesn't like that. And so this is what happened. It says in Matthew 2, 3 through 6, it says, When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So why is Bethlehem significant? It's because the prophets foretold that the king, the king from ancient of days, the shepherd, capital S, of Israel, would be born in the city of David, a town called Bethlehem, which is just just not far outside the city of Jerusalem. Micah is the prophet whom they're quoting, the prophet Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, prophesying around 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And the Jews were looking for, especially in the time leading up to Jesus, there was something of a messianic fervor. The Jews were looking. They were anticipating a Messiah. They knew he was coming. They knew 700 years before the fact where he would be born. There was just one problem. And that is that Joseph, according to, the, to Jewish reckoning, is Jesus' father. And the problem is this, is that Joseph doesn't live in Bethlehem. Joseph lives in Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? It's up, in, it's up in Galilee. It's up in the northern part of Israel. Some, it's the 70 miles in a straight line from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That means there's probably, I don't know, 80, 90 mile walk to Bethlehem. So, you got, so you, you, you're God and you got the people. You got Mary and you got Joseph who are going to be your son's parents on earth. And they live 80, 90 miles 
from Bethlehem. How are you going to get a woman who is nine months pregnant to walk 80 miles down the road? How are you going to do that? To fulfill a prophecy you made 700 years earlier. How are you going to do it? Here's how you do it. You cause the most powerful person in the world, Caesar Augustus, to decide to have a census. That's how you do it. Why? Because you're God. Think about what this tells us about God. God moved the heart of an emperor in order to move a pregnant woman 80 miles down the road. Caesar Augustus is the most powerful person, one of the most powerful people in the world. He thinks, most likely, that he's a big deal. He thinks that everything he does is so important. He thinks, I got to get all my tax money out of all my subjects. The movers and shakers in society are all concerned about what's going on in Rome, about this emperor of the entire known Roman world who's such a big deal, and yet God is saying, I'm going to move you to take a census of the world because I got bigger plans, namely moving a pregnant woman. The biggest, the, the biggest things that were going on in history, frankly, they're, oftentimes they're small to God. God's got much bigger plans in store, namely his son being born where he was prophesied to be born. God, do you see what this means? God is working things in history to fulfill his good purpose. And oftentimes it's, it's, things, that are, it's, it's things that are so important that we don't realize they're important. It's things that we don't see as important, but he's moving all of history to accomplish them. He moved the heart of an emperor to fulfill his prophecy. What does that mean? It means that it's that means it means for us Christians that we must work to see the world as God sees it, not as the world sees it. Caesar Augustus thought what he was doing was the most important thing when God knew that what he was doing was the most important a baby being born was far more than the census of the whole known world. But you don't, you don't see it unless, you, unless you're looking for it. You don't see it unless you're looking and thinking in terms of not, what the, not what's going on in the world, but asking ourselves, man, what God is doing? Nations are important. Leaders are important. But what God is doing is much more important than what Trump is doing. What God is doing is much more important than what Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin is doing. Much more important. And we will get, we'll get history wrong if we miss this. That God is doing great things in the world. And it also means this. Is that if God has a plan for you, and if you are committed to fulfilling God's plan for your life, God will bend all of human history to make it happen. You see, so many times we have, such, we have such small plans for ourselves because we have such a small view of God. God's big. If he wants to, to turn the course of human history, 
just so a baby can be born? What can he do in your life? What can he do through your life? For you to do what he has called you to do. And so what this, what this world-moving God means for us is to change our glasses. To see the world differently than the world sees. To value things differently than the world values it. To trust this world-moving God. So number one, the God of Christmas is a world-moving God. Number two, the God of Christmas is a self-impoverishing God. Look again there in verses 4 through 7 of Luke 2. It says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, it, it, it translates this, this manger here. And that's kind of, I mean, we know what it is, but it's kind of an old-timey word, but it kind of loses its effect because we associate manger with Jesus. There's another, no other time we use the word manger except with Jesus. But, but remember what it's talking about. It's a food trough. Feeding an animal feeding trough. So, so think about this story for a second. Mary is is visited by this angel. She's a young woman. She's probably a teenager. And as a virgin, this this angel tells her that she's going to have a son. And not, usually, angels don't come announcing announcing the the results of your pregnancy test. Okay, they usually don't do that. Okay, it's atypical, right? The angel comes and tells her that a child will be born. But who is this child? Well, the angel tells her in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Who is this child? My goodness. Who is this child? I mean, who, who, else in the whole, who else in the whole world has ever had language spoken to them, spoken of them like that? Who is this child? He's the one, he's the one that the Old Testament foretold. He's the one that how we're on, in, our, in our journey through the Bible, we're showing how the whole Bible is pointing to this singular day when God would fulfill his whole plans for human history. He is the snake crusher, the, the devil destroyer of Genesis 3. He's the blessing to the nations through Abraham of Genesis 12. He's the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He's the heir of David in 2 Samuel 7. He's the ruler of nations. He's the son of God. In Revelation, he's the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the fulfillment of every promise ever made in the Old Testament. He is the satisfaction of every longing. He is the one, the Bible says, by whom, through whom, and for whom everything exists. And he was born in a feeding trough.
He was born in a feeding trough. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was born in a manger. You see, part of the greatness of the Christian God, the one true God, part of his greatness is that he doesn't count himself too great to save us. You see, other religions have a problem with this. In fact, Muslims reject, utterly reject, as blasphemy, God becoming a man. Why? Because it's too degrading. But here's the thing. Any all-powerful being could be a tyrant, but, but an all-powerful being who is also so utterly compassionate that he would, of his own volition, take on human limitations to save his rebellious creatures. That's a god. That's a true God. That's a real God. That's a great God. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God of the universe, chose to be born in a manger. He lived between only 33 to 37 years old. He was crucified by his own creatures. He was homeless during most of his ministries. He was not part of the movers and shakers of society. He held no political office. When he died, the only thing that he owned was the shirt on his back. Why would Jesus do this? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the God of Christmas. God's trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach us what perfect righteousness looks like. He's trying to teach us what love and humility and grace and kindness and mercy look like and he didn't just show it didn't just tell us in parables he came down himself to show us and what does it mean for us paul tells us in philippians chapter 2 he says if there is any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or, va- or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. 
That's the God of Christmas. He came down to show us what it means to be truly human, to show us what it means to be who we were made to be, to show us what love looks like. The God of the universe, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist, took on human form and became a servant. A servant. And Paul says the the only proper response to this for those who know God, who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe that, in fact, this is what God has done, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God in flesh, the only proper response, then, is to have the same mind in us that was in Christ. If God did not consider himself too high to become a servant, neither should you. He had a lot further to go down, believe me. And yet, what's reality? What's the problem? Reality is this. So often in life, we're worried about why people aren't serving me. I'm glad God didn't take that attitude. He, he wasn't there. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he, he took the initiative. He came down, and Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, said, I did not come to be served but came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. If God is not too great to become a servant, neither are we. And it's incumbent upon us who have the Holy Spirit of God and of Jesus Christ to take on the heart of a servant, to not be concerned whether or not people are serving us, but to ask ourselves, am I serving others? Am I, giving my, am I like Jesus in serving others? Am I... Do I have the mind of Christ, the mind of my Savior, the God who did not count himself too great to serve, and neither should I? He's the self-impoverishing God. He showed us what love looked like at Christmas. The God of Christmas is a world-moving God. He's a self-impoverishing God. And number three, he's a promise-keeping God. In Luke 8 there, the angels told, I mean, in Luke 2 there, the angels told the shepherds, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ the Lord. Who's Christ the Lord. You know, sometimes we can, we can be so familiar with the story that we miss what's happening. But as I mentioned earlier, Angelic visitations don't just happen every day, right? We read this story and we just, you know, we miss the significance of what's happening, but you can't understand the story unless you place it in its context, right? The Old Testament concluded with the prophet Malachi, who prophesied roughly 400 years before the coming of Jesus. And the whole Old Testament, as we've talked about, is prophesying, proclaiming of this coming one. And even the, even the Jews in the, in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, they understood that they had not been visited by a true prophet of God. And so in essence, in essence, 400 years up until the coming of Jesus Christ, 
heaven was silent for the Jews. There was no word from God. But then, all at once, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is visited by an angel. Mary is visited by an angel. Joseph is visited by an angel. A bunch of nobody shepherds out in the woods is visited by a whole choir of angels. Something big's about to go down. 400 years of heavenly silence is shattered by an angelic choir and a baby's cry. We can't miss what's going on here. And what explains the importance of this event? Well, it says, it says, because Jesus or Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph, uh, uh, a person's lineage of, was, was reckoned through, the, through their father, of course. And so... Being Joseph's son, Jesus, is of the line of David. And why is this important? Because throughout the whole Bible, ever since the days of David, God anticipated, prophesied, foretold that a ascendant of David would reign on his throne forever. Let's, let's, to feel the weight of this, let's just look at s- several passages. First is the covenant with David, God made with him in 2 Samuel 7. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And the name by which he is called is the Lord is our righteousness. In Ezekiel 34, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them and he shall... Uh, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This, this is not like peripheral. This is not like just an aside in the biblical story. God was prophesying that the climax of the biblical story, the climax of human history, would come when the descendant of David is born. And he was born 2,000 years ago in Israel, in the town of Bethlehem, in a manger. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
the king has come. The king has arrived. He has come for us. And what is this, what is the, what is the, what is the shepherds, what does the angel tell, uh, what does the angels tell the shepherds here? They call him something. They says, to you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. You know what Christ means? It's the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. It's the same, same meaning. It means anointed one. What does that mean? In ancient Israel, they would anoint people who were set apart for a specific office. You know who, was, you know who were anointed in Israel? Prophets, priests, and kings. There were many anointed ones, but Jesus, the Bible anticipated and foretold, is the anointed one. He is the prophet the priest, the king. The one that everything pointed to, the anointed one who would fulfill all the offices of Israel, who would, who would bring to uh, fulfillment all that God had foretold, to would, who would deliver his people finally and fully from their sins, and, and in him the whole earth would be made new. And Jesus... He knew that this is who he was. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place, and found the place where it was written. Quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There it is. Messiah. To proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed in him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus? If you were a Jew... You would know what he's saying, but you also wouldn't be able to believe your ears. Because Jesus opened the Bible, talked about the coming Messiah, and Jesus sat down and looked at everybody and just paused for a second. And then he said, I'm here. I'm here. The Savior of the world. That's what Christmas is about. This is who the God of Christmas is. He's the world-moving God. He's the self-impoverishing God. He's the promise-keeping God. Christmas is here. Christmas is upon us. And we must remember this Christmas and every Christmas that Christmas is about so much more than a baby in a manger. He's right, he's, he's right there. He's so cute. He's so cute. But let me tell you something. He's a grown man. He's the son of God. He's ascended into heaven. He is seated right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. John, the apostle, had a vision of him. 
and his eye, his, his hair was white as wool, and his eyes were flames of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of many thunders and the raging of many waters. And the Bible says he's coming back, and every eye will see him. That's what Christmas is about. It's about a God who came to save us. The greatest gift that you can receive this Christmas is the gift that God has given. The gift of Jesus Christ. If you will turn from your sins and believe in him, crucified, risen, ascended, coming soon, and you surrender to him and find your place in this history-long story that God is writing and find your place in it. Find your place where the, the very precise person that God made you to be to fulfill this, your place in his story that he made you to fulfill. When you find Jesus, you finally find who you really are. And you can find him today by trusting in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you.